What's good, everybody? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by DistroKid. They are the go-to for digital music distribution and the easiest way for musicians to get your music onto Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, and more. They offer unlimited uploads, and artists keep 100% of their earnings in stores 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor. Fastest payouts. They help out with automatic splits, cover song clearance, and all kinds of other amazing tools and templates to help you get the most visibility for your releases. I dig this company and really appreciate their business model that offers more features than any other distributor at the most affordable price possible for solo musicians, bands, studio artists, DJs, and any other creators that are producing music in their home. And they also offer label services as well. They're distributing over a third of the world's digital music at this point. And the best part about DistroKid sponsoring the podcast is that they are offering Dan Cable Presents listeners 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable services even cheaper. Check out the link in the episode notes. I will also put it in my Instagram bio in the link tree. Click that link and it will give you 30% off your first year of service. Super stoked to have DistroKid sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their support of this thing. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Produce Row Cafe here in Portland, Oregon. This has become one of my favorite local hangs because they have free music every Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. and Sunday afternoons 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. They are located in inner southeast Portland, and not only do they offer free music on their their large patio setup, but they've also got a killer brunch menu from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. The French toast and the breakfast sandwich are lights out, and I can't really do much alcohol personally, but I love their Virgin Bloody Marys, and they've got some other mocktails for folks like me as well, as well as the the real deal cocktails, mimosa flights, and all the goods, so come on out for brunch or come out in the evening for the new warm weather cocktail menu featuring lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, tons of outdoor patio space, and good eats. Big thanks to Produce Row Cafe for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Let's do it. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Campbell Presents Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the program once again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Friday. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. And that will really help propel this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts, which will give it more visibility on the national and international levels. Can't say thank you enough to the folks that have already taken the time to do that, but uh, appreciate you just for tuning in. You can hit follow wherever you're listening to it from. If you're listening on Spotify, which it is available 
there now. You can hit follow and like there. And I've also been putting up some monthly playlists on Spotify, dropping those every first of the month. So the June one is now available. Links for those things will be in the episode notes along with the links for the Dan Cable Presents t-shirts and mugs. And my guest for this week on the podcast, Ben Jorgensen of Armor for Sleep. Super stoked to share this conversation. This was a really special one for me. Armor for Sleep came onto the scene when I was around 19 or 20. And I remember just absolutely falling in love with what to do when you are dead when it came out and those singles when they hit the airwaves. And that was a, a interesting time of music. I think there was a, a lot of albums at that time where maybe I only cared for a few tracks off of uh, certain records from that era. But uh, I remember hearing the What to Do When You're Dead front to back for the first time and was just really impressed that uh, there wasn't really a track that I wanted to hit fast forward on. It was something that I was really liked listening to front to back and definitely still have some days where I'm eager to throw on some armor for sleep, especially if I'm I'm in this emo, pop punk, kind of screamo mood. It is, uh, it is a record that definitely makes it in to the rotation, and this was definitely just a uh, right place, right time thing. I knew that Armor for Sleep had planned to do a 15-year anniversary tour for What to Do When You Are Dead last year, and uh, because of all the COVID shit, it got postponed so they recently re-announced those dates for towards the uh, the middle to end of summer here in 2021 and reached out and happened to be in LA on my California road trip which is where Ben currently lives and he invited me to come through to his place and we were able to do this thing in person which made it that much better we didn't have to do the zoom thing so it was a very cool opportunity for me to get to sit down with this dude uh someone that you know made music that really spoke to me at that time and just kind of a full circle thing to get to sit down with him in los angeles and and talk about this thing i know you know a couple months ago uh, this band Nico Vagon, who was another band that I really admired around that time, and I spoke on that intro that you know I think it's just as important for me to to try to to dive back and and try to speak to some of these folks that that made records that I thought were influential to me at that time, and maybe some of the the people I was hanging around with, including Souls of Fuse bandmates. At that time, I remember listening to this album on the way home from shows. I feel like the first time even hearing this record was driving home from the Roxy one night after a show that our band played. might have even been the one where uh, our guitar player and main songwriter, Ryan Schicht, unfortunately uh, lost a couple guitars that night at the Roxy because he uh, thought they made it into one of our cars and it didn't unfortunately so um, I'm sure 
I'm sure Ryan is still wondering where those guitars ended up and if they're they're out there somewhere being being played. One of them was a, a beautiful red Diarmon guitar. So, um, but I, I for some reason recall that being the uh, the time I really heard that that album front to back and and not just hearing Car Underwater on the radio or or seeing the video on on MTV. So, what a trip, man. What a what a fucking trip and uh just feeling really grateful for uh the opportunity and just feeling really grateful for my my trip to California. I'm fresh back to Portland from that and just had such an amazing time hanging out in Sacramento with friends on the way down and then getting to spend a week out in LA hanging around with my dad and kind of going back and forth and doing a few podcasts that first week. And this is, this is one of them. So, uh, I hope you enjoy the chat that I had with Ben shout out to his dog, Yuki, who, uh, was so stoked to see me. They peed on me and the couch that Ben and I were recording the podcast on. So that was a, that was a special moment, but, uh, very worth it. That dog is incredibly, incredibly cute. And if you're a fan of this band, they are doing this tour this summer, the What to Do When You're Dead tour, playing the record. Definitely check out those 15-year anniversary vinyls. I picked one of those up, and they are very cool. So that is available via Equal Visions, a very great record label who I've, I've gotten to have maybe a couple bands on from that that label recently there was the uh the Vons episode for sure that wasn't too long ago so they are on there as well as uh many other great bands so definitely support them and if you tuned in because you are a fan of Armor for Sleep I'm stoked to have you here like I said earlier new episodes with artists from all genres of music drop every Friday Also dropping in this feed is a series I do with my cousin called I Dig Records. Those come out every Wednesday doing the deep dive on an album, listening to tracks and just talking about it. Usually a record from one of our collections that we want to get to know more. And earlier this week, we dropped volume 19, which was us discussing Bonnie Vare's 2016 album, 22 A Million, maybe one of my favorite episodes that we've done just a just a fun chat with my cousin so that is available if that sounds of interest and stay tuned for more of those coming at you and if you are in the portland oregon area don't forget to check out some free music at produce row cafe every wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m and every sunday afternoon 1 p.m to 3 p.m getting the late brunch in this sunday june 13th we got a beat set from Slurgeon going on. And then June 16th, we've got more hip-hop producers and beat makers. Brother vs. Robot and Alex Meltzer will be there. June 20th, Free Tillman and Love Jones. They just put out a really great beat tape, so check that out. And then June 23rd, Fox and Bones, the folk Americana duo will be there followed by karen ann on june 27th she's an incredible soulful singer songwriter so free music going on here in portland oregon every wednesday night 
every Sunday afternoon. The Produce Row link will be in the episode notes along with all of the other things. The link for Armor for Sleep and Equal Vision Records. And that is all of the ramblings up top. We're going to get into this one. Episode 258. Thank you to Ben Jorgensen of Armor for Sleep for doing the thing. We're going to kick it off with the uh, the track, the most iconic track in the Armor for Sleep catalog, and then that is the first song off of What to Do When You're Dead, the 2005 release. This is Car Underwater. Let's do the damn thing. Yeah. 
like having a mic to do a podcast because like i feel like when i'm saying something i'm like holding on to something instead of just like talking into the ether you know with yeah. like a a mic on a table i feel like i'm not actually talking i don't know i feel like that's the the nice thing about having the headphones sometimes too is like you yeah. feel like you're like in the conversation totally just like speaking into this mic that may or may not be working and just maybe playing like pl- pretend radio show yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i'm super super stoked to have the opportunity to chat with you man and i think especially uh i find it fitting for me to get to talk to you here because there were many drives in and out of la listening to some armor for sleep and specifically what to do when you're dead. That's awesome. That record had a big impact on, uh, the band that I was playing in at the time that around here. And, uh, a lot of my friends that were in that circle, that was just a record that was in heavy rotation. And, um, it's cool. Uh, it's cool listening back to it now. And, I picked up one of those uh, those 15 year anniversary vinyls when they oh thanks dude. they dropped and uh, was really stoked that that was being pressed again and had a lot of time just even around that time to to listen back and and see how it held up for myself and I think it's like still super enjoyable to listen to and um, thanks, also bro. yeah also listening back I think it really. Uh, it really seemed to overlap a few different genres at that time. You know, like it wasn't just a, a pop punk thing. It, it felt like there was a lot of alternative rock vibes from that era of things. And, and that punk rock energy seemed to live in there. So it seemed like it, it maybe had an appeal to a wide range of people that enjoyed those genres of music at that time. Um, but yeah, so pumped cool, to thanks. uh have the opportunity to to chat with you just about the music and and where you come from and kind of how you initially uh got hooked into music so maybe we can uh swing it all the way back there um, take it all the way back yeah how did you uh what was like your early exposure to music and getting into songwriting um i had a couple weird elements of my childhood um i went to a private Jewish day school growing up. So there were like 50 kids in my grade. Um, And what was interesting about that experience is that my, I come from, um, my parents got divorced when I was two. So I was, I had this interesting experience of being in this like super isolated bubble of like, you know, this religious school, but like um, I was different from all my friends because they had this like super stable, uh, family situation. You know, they were mostly, you know, these like religious Jewish families. And I was like the weird kid, um, who like barely saw my dad and my mom worked all the time. And so I think, um, I don't know, something about that weird situation made me want to look for like an outlet. Um, and I just got into music really young. I remember the first album I bought was, um, the black album by Metallica in fourth grade. And I remember putting on 
my like Walkman headphones and I heard that riff and like I, I still have like a vivid memory of sitting in my bedroom when I was in fourth grade and I heard it and I was like what the fuck is this <laughs> and um so then from that point on I told um my friend Jeremiah I was like you're gonna take guitar lessons I'm gonna take drum lessons and I made like three of my friends just play music and um we just jammed out in my mom's basement um and I, I played drums uh up until the end of eighth grade. And then when we got to a different school, we met this guy, Matt, who became the singer of our band. So we had this like punk rock band, um, all throughout high school. And that was another weird experience because, you know, I was going to this like super religious high school, but my friends and I in the band that we had then, um, started discovering shows and like hardcore and metal. Um, and, uh, and the scene in New Jersey was just nuts at that time. So, you know, by the time I was 17 years old, I had already played like hundreds of shows in my old punk rock band as the drummer. Um, just tons of like all ages venues around at that time too. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. I, I don't think in my old band, which was called Random Task, I don't think we ever played in one club. I didn't even know that there were like clubs that did shows. It was all VFW hall shows, um, American Legion hall shows, church shows. Um, and like I put on, I put on my first show when I was, uh, 13 years old, I booked an American Legion hall and I, my mom took money at the door, um, and literally I just wanted to do the show so I could like see these bands. Like I, I, I had no idea if I was, you know, making a hundred dollars or losing a hundred dollars. Um, that's probably like the swing of what happened, but like, I literally just wanted to do the show so I could see, you know, my friend's bands play. And, um, and so, yeah, so by the time I was 17 and wanted to stop playing drums in that band and I started, um, you know, wanting to like play, uh, guitar and sing on the songs that I had been writing I had already been doing it for so long and I already kind of knew like a couple record label you know what I mean like at that point it was just already what I was so into yeah when you were playing drums in that band did you have this real itch or desire to be more a part of the the composing side of like songwriting and being being kind of the the front person for that i was never interested in being the front person um i started playing guitar because uh the guitar players in my band in high school would just leave their guitars in my mom's basement instead of like having to drive you know when their moms picked them up from my house it would just be easier for them to leave it there so i just like out of boredom just started playing guitar one day and i think um just out of like i wanted to record another um, album with that band at the time, like before we were out of high school. Um, and just out of necessity, I was like, we need more songs. So I, I started writing songs just so we could like record an album, um, during our senior year. Um, so I didn't have like, you know, aspirations of being like a front man. And, um, and yeah, so at the end of senior year, I told the other, we were all going to different colleges and I told the guys, I was like, I don't want to like you know, keep playing drums in, in this band when I'm like going to be starting up, uh, at Rutgers, which is the college that I was going to go to. Um, and I had been writing my own songs at that point and I just made a demo. I called it armor for sleep and I sent it to like the two label connections that I had from random task. And like, 
out of the two labels that I sent it to, one of them called back and was like, what is this band? Like, we want to sign you. And I was like, it's literally like not a band. It's <laughs> just me. <laughs> it's just me. And I suck. And um, I just started college. But it was like one of those labels was Victory. which Okay. Taking Back Sunday. Taking Back Sunday had not happened yet. Okay. Um, I mean, I loved Victory growing up like Snapcase and everything I like idolized victory but for me um I was a huge Thursday fan I was like a fanboy um when I was in high school and um they were on victory so I was like fuck to be on Thursday's label that would be nuts <laughs> but also I, I had nothing and those demos that you that you did send over was that all you as far as instrumentation and these DIY recordings that you yeah sent. the first demo was just me I think my mom knew I was going to the studio but the guy in the studio um, John Niclerio who recorded all of the random task stuff and all my friends bands and he even did I think he did the first My Chemical Romance record just like everything out of the east coast like chances are you went to John Niclerio's studio um, so yeah I just I went to him I was like I have a couple songs and the advantage that I had Basically, like, if you can play guitar, you can play bass. You know what I mean? Like, in, in these, in bands like like us. Like, um, But the advantage that I had was, since I played drums, I I could just do everything myself. So, yeah, I played the drums and all the other instruments and then sang on it. And, um, yeah, so the first, the first demo was just all me. And you were, like, you knew what you were locking in with if you were playing bass on the stuff that you played drums on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it wasn't the most complicated shit. It was pretty simple. And that's it. And like, yeah, kind of weird in life. Like if I just was like, eh, I don't feel like sending this demo out to the two people that I know, I probably would have just like stayed in college and, you know, it's weird, weird how that happens. So that could completely like derail you going to Rutgers or did you end up going for a bit? And Yeah, it was a combination of that. And like, I wanted to do music and like, that was interesting. And also when I was a freshman at college at Rutgers, um, my first day I was going to be an English major and literally the first lecture that I was going to, um, at Rutgers, I was in a bookstore buying my book. Like I was like running late. So I had to be in the bookstore, run to class first day of class. And of course, and so I'm in the bookstore and I look up on the TV and I see a plane flying into the world trade center. And so literally my first, my first day in my English lecture, I remember passing a note to the girl sitting next to me. Um, and cause I was the only one who had seen this cause I got to class late and I wrote on the note, like, did you hear what happened in New York? And I sent it to her and she must've thought I was crazy. Like literally 10 minutes into the first class at college. <laughs> and she looked at me and, and didn't respond or anything. And then a guy came in and told the professor something and then 20 minutes later came back and the professor was like, you guys need to go and call your parents. But so yeah, freshman year, uh, September 11th happened. And that was obviously like traumatizing for everyone. But for me trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, I think that was another like, uh, reevaluation period of like, what do I actually want to do? I think. And I chose the wrong choice. <laughs> <laughs> So were you still like, even after sending those demos out, were you writing a lot of song ideas and writing a lot of lyrics and, and things like that at that time? Yeah, that year 
I was I uh I Anthony who's still in the band now um I connected with him and he was the bass player he still is and so yeah we we started hanging out and throwing around other ideas and there were there were uh, another two guys in the band um one of them had an apartment in New York City and I would just hang out with them and kind of that first year I was just kind of um lazily writing songs and I guess by the end of that year we had enough to record um our first album um and we went to LA actually the first time I ever went to LA was the summer of 2002 to record that album so yeah I'm kind of if I have a gun to my head and have to write songs, I don't, but like, I'll usually like accumulate a bunch over the course of time and then be like, Oh, I guess, yeah, I guess there's enough to do an album. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what happened that year. Did you find a lot of, uh, comfort in writing tunes and like writing lyrics? Did you feel like that was like an important way for you to express yourself as far as like, what you were talking about earlier, just as far as your, your upbringing and whatnot and kind of immersing yourself in the music. You know, I guess like, you know, everyone's like, uh, my songs are my therapy. And for me, it's just kind of like what comes out. I know a weird experience for me was like, so these like two, this two song demo that I did by myself, um, it wasn't really good. It wasn't like this like therapeutic experience for me or whatever. It's just kind of what came out. And I remember there was, there was always this like really pretty girl that was hanging around that like, um, I never really talked to her or whatever. And I remember like I went over to my friend's place and she was there and I played, you know, the demo. And like after, after everyone listened, this girl who like never talked to me, like looked at me and was like, that's like really good. And I was like, what? Like, for me, it's like, I've never, I never feel like anything that I'm doing is good. It's, it's just interesting that other people, sometimes other people like it. So I think, you know, I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do that thing more. But like, I don't, if it was just me not playing my things for anyone, I, you know, I definitely don't feel like, uh, it's like this therapeutic experience. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, what about um actually playing on stage? Oh god. That that was uh an acquired thing. It was rough at the beginning. For me personally, like it <laughs> uh like people who were trying to help us out, I remember they just kept saying like you have to open your eyes at least once when you're up there. <laughs> <laughs> like I, th- that was like a learning curve for me because uh, you know, some people like Adam Lazara, um, Gerard, those are just great performers. They got up on stage and they know what our performance is. But like me, I was never, you know, I didn't start this band cause like I'm an outgoing guy and I was in musicals. Like that's not me, you know? Um, so it took me a while to be like, to understand that it's okay to perform and, you know, and I don't think I ever like did anything hokey, but I did learn to like open up and it, it definitely helped when people started liking the music. Um, you know, I felt like I could loosen up a little bit, but that was, that took me a while to, to figure out how to do and probably an unhealthy amount of drinking when I was too young to open myself up on stage. Yeah. I think a lot of people get, get into that just cause it seems so much easier if you you can loosen up that way. Oh my God. Yeah. And, uh, at the beginning, I mean, it helped me at least 
find out that I could do it. And then obviously I didn't need the alcohol, um, anymore to do it. But at the beginning, like when we were playing in front of like 15 people, it was fun to like, you know, get a little buzz and be into it on stage. But then there were definitely a few shows where like, I maybe shouldn't have had five shots of Jaeger before. <laughs> and like the rest of the guys in my band, um, had to tell me to chill. I think, I think when I like drank too much before I played, I would like antagonize the crowd. Like no one, no one liked us. And like, that was fine. But like when I drank too much, I would start like, <laughs> like berating the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and then also I would imagine you, you weren't really, uh, like you were kind of thrown into like playing these armor shows before ever like recording music, not really playing shows with it. And then yeah. playing the shows after you had recorded some material and put, put a band together. Yeah. And like, so we did that first album summer of 2002. Um, it didn't work out with two of the original members when we were in LA. Um, and Gabe Saporta, who was the singer from the band Midtown at the time, um, he was our manager then. Um, he helped us with the recording of the first album. And so in LA, basically two members of the band, um, you know, we parted ways with them. And Gabe was like, hey, do you want to come up and uh, open up for us and Taking Back Sunday, who were like, we had become friends with them that year. And I was like, yeah, we're finishing making this record. We we need a drummer and a guitar player. Um, so I called my friends Nash and PJ, who were in um, another band on Equal Vision called Prevent Falls from New Jersey. And I was like, hey, Anthony and I are finished making this record, but Gabe wants to take us on tour. Like, I think we were getting home on a Wednesday and the first show was like on a Saturday. I was like, when we get home, can you guys rehearse these songs with us so we can go on tour? So like for those shows that we opened up for Midtown and Taking Back Sunday, we had been a band for like four days, like as a unit. <laughs> and we were also pretty bad. Um, but that was like amazing. Those were awesome shows. And that was right when Taking Back Sunday or I think Tell All Your Friends had just come out or something. So they were like on the verge of like, it was just cool to see. And yeah. you're playing in front of a bunch of kids on totally. these shows not just yeah. 15 people anymore no exactly these yeah those were clubs those were like a thousand to two thousand cap rooms and midtown was also like a big deal then um so yeah that was just nuts um yeah it was really cool did that help you a lot get out of your your comfort zone or as far as being on stage and yeah, I Being think the front person for, for sure. Yeah, for those types of shows. Yeah, and you know, Adam was really cool to be around. Adam was also like a big early fan of us, and um, I felt like they would play. And he, Adam used to just go nuts, and he was a big fan of us, and so was Gabe. And when we played, I don't know if I feel like I like let them down, but I was like, fuck, I want to get better. Like I want to be as good as Adam. Um, and yeah, so it was definitely just like inspiration to be better. Cause I wanted, you know, I didn't want to let them down. And I, de I definitely, I know, I think Gabe at the beginning when he was trying to like help me performance, uh, perform better. I feel like he had so many head scratching moments with me. Where it's like, why are you not doing anything on stage? Like, <laughs> move or open your eyes or sing better. I, I had to learn a lot. It's hard to get comfortable in that space though. You know, especially if that's not what you're inclined to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, I never, you know, I didn't start a band for the attention. It's kind of the opposite. 
Like I was always reclusive and, um, but yeah. And then we got attention and then I was almost like forced to be like, Oh, you're looking at me. Let me, uh, let me actually do something interesting outside of being on stage. Um, how was it being like a pretty reclusive person? How was it dealing with even just like meeting fans after and, and starting to get some of that attention where maybe, maybe some people after the show did want to talk to you and whatnot. Yeah. Um, it was cool. I mean, it was weird because that, you know, I was going through that when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, it was cool. It definitely, you know, like I kind of grew up, um, like I didn't go to college, like that was my college. So it was cool. I mean, I think it, it maybe it messed with my head a little bit because all the attention that I got at that time was through this thing that I was doing. And like, I don't know in life if I really had a, a chance to just develop as like a normal person who formed relationships out of just like being me. Like, I feel like it was all tied to a product that I was creating. Um, That's how people knew you. You were yeah, the for dude sh- from armor for sleep. Yeah, for sure. And, um, I don't know. Also, it's like, just in like relationships, they say like, you need to, you know, be happy with yourself. Um, and in, you know, before you can be happy in a relationship. And I feel like the attention that I got from the band was like, I don't know if I was like a fully formed human before that. So like, I, you know, the attention that I got was just from that. Not like, not like we were ever like as big as Fall Out Boy or anything. You know what I mean? Like we were never on that level. That must be a whole different thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not, I mean, you know, I'm not complaining. I, I, it also really helped me just like open up and be a more social person and want to connect with people more. Um, so that, that was hugely beneficial for me. And getting to see different parts of the country and different parts of the world, I would imagine in some Uh, cases. And yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the experiences that we all had touring in our early twenties across the country, um, you know, we'll have for the rest of our lives. And I know like people who, um, spend time in the military, a lot of people say like, you know, even after their service is done, they just, they dream about being in the service for the rest of their lives. And, um, I think it's like just being in your twenties, um, whatever you do is super long lasting. And, you know, I still have dreams of, you know, being in that van and being on tour. Um, it definitely shaped who I am now. And I know it has for the other guys too. So we're kind of always bonded through that. Is it something you, uh, you, you get like the desire to move around because of that or, move around like as far as you know like when you would when you would come off tour oh were yeah you, were you comfortable being in one place when you would come off tour or were you like hey no. let's let's fucking hit the road again yeah it, it it definitely got weird to come home and uh yeah wake up in the same bed every night um probably to an unhealthy degree like i think in the same way like actors and comedians go through it like especially like playing shows every night is such a rush and um, such an adrenaline rush and you're surrounded by all these people and all these people want to talk to you. It's, it's almost like a drug that when you come home and you know, 
there's not that rush every night. You know, it's like you, you don't have that hit of dopamine and I can see how that, um, is not good for mental health, you know? And it's also, yeah, it can, it can be, it can be a, a weird cycle when you're, you know, hit with that amount of, you know, a rush every night to come home and be stagnant. Yeah. Yeah. So after the, after you went out with like taking back Sunday midtown, is that when a little bit of buzz starts to really develop around the band or was it not until what to do when you're dead really came out and car underwater? Totally. So, yeah. So, um, I always, I wish I had like a timeline of all this because I feel like sometimes it gets fuzzy, but yeah. So 2002, that was our first tour with Midtown and Taking Back Sunday. We had just recorded this album, which would become, well, it was, it was called Dream to Make Believe, but it wasn't released yet. So that got released, um, maybe I want to, I don't remember, maybe like after that tour at some point, months after. And so Gabe was our manager, Taking Back Sunday we became friends with were blowing up. And so people like Gabe and Adam were like, Oh, you guys are next in line. You guys are going to be like the next thing to like blow up. And again, me, like I'm, I'm oblivious to like how other people perceive the band or whatever. So I was like, okay, I'll trust you guys. Um, (laughs) So that first album dream to make believe came out and um, it didn't happen like that. I mean, like, you know, we, we started building fans and like, it was cool, but like, I think we thought like, we're going to blow up. Like we're going to, you know, cause like Thursday like blew up when they came out and like, so honestly after the first album, um, I don't know, maybe it was a little disappointing or maybe, you know, I, yeah. Gabe was our manager at the time. And I remember him being like, I don't know what happened, man. I thought it was going to be huge. Yeah. Like lots of false um, expectations. Yeah. So then going into what to do when you were dead, um, I don't know. There was a part of me that's like, well, it didn't happen. Like no one really cares. We're not going to blow up like that. Um, and so that's just, you know, it was a weird place to be in, uh, like writing those songs just to almost feel like maybe like we missed an opportunity or like just kind of like disappointed. Um, and then, yeah, I wrote a bunch of stuff and then, um, that album came out and yeah. And then there was car underwater and, um, that kind of put us on a different trajectory, I guess. Yeah. Did you feel differently about that batch of tunes? Like it was on some other different level than the previous record and have some kind of sense that your, your songwriting was developing in a way that was, I don't know, more appealing or, um, that's a good question. Even just like a different, maybe confidence in the, the songwriting at that point. Yeah, I think so. I think I also learned like, um, I was like super into like shoegazy, like Mogwai and like Godspeedy Black Emperor. And I think playing shows, like playing with Taking Back Sunday in Midtown, I was like, you know what? It can be fun to do like a couple upbeat things. And like, it's fun to like do a song where people can mosh to. So I definitely think like playing live influenced my writing style a little bit just because I wanted to, you know, have people like jump around at our shows a little more. I don't think I was like, like, you know, I'm climbing this mountain of being a songwriter, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, if it progressed, then cool, but I was just doing stuff. It was big for me, um, to like fight for there to be a concept. I had that pretty early on and 
definitely felt a bunch of resistance to it. Um, but I'm glad I kind of stuck that one out. Yeah, man. I think that's what kind of makes the record special and makes it feel like a, you know, this full experience, like every song belongs together. And there's obviously like some of those seamless transitions on the record that really tie everything together, which, um, is great. But also, you know, you speaking to like the Mogwai thing or Godspeed, like some, some progressive, uh, areas of music and i and i think that was also kind of represented in that record too like thinking about a quick little fight Mm -hmm. like synths (laughs) drum machine and and a vocal like just hanging out there and like i i think that was like those are the cool risks on the album i think and, and tracks i look forward to on the record saves the day and thursday you know were like kind of my gods but also i loved like radiohead like actually i would say i learned how to play guitar um because i loved okay computer so much that i wanted to figure out how to play it um so i like i looked on like guitar tabs and you know they were like put your middle finger on this fret and uh yeah so okay computer i was like I contemplated for a while getting like an okay computer tattoo. I'm really happy I didn't, but um, I just loved that. And, I, and then I loved learning about how okay computer was just basically trying to be like a seventies, you know, like Pink Floydy concept album. And I was like, Pink Floyd, what is that? And then I got into that rabbit hole of all that stuff. Um, so yeah, also I was in that fuck it stage of like, I don't think anyone's going to like us. So like, let's be weird, I guess. Yeah. The, the expectations that were maybe set didn't even hit for the first record. So you kind of <laughs> yeah. were in that, that position for the second one. Mm-hmm. And I remember I won't, I won't throw them under the bus, but someone was like, after they heard what to do when you were dead, they were like, it's good. I just feel like the first record was better and you should have like put that one out first. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that, uh, you know, learning all that, that shit off. Okay. Computer though. Also like opened up your, your mind as far as like songwriting and I don't know, just I feel like learning covers sometimes can help you connect the dots within your own songwriting sometime and open oh, up yeah, different things. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I always, I always liked the more uh, like the deeper listening experiences. Um, you know, like I was never into just like a pop song for the sake of a pop song. I, like I used to love, I still do, um, just love Nine Inch Nails, just like the, you know, something that has emotional depth, music that has emotional depth that, you know, maybe feels melancholy, like that's just always resonated with me. Um, so yeah, something like OK Computer where there's like a, a deeper meaning and that's just, yeah, always been um, 
what spoke to me about music, you know? Yeah. I think I just, uh, appreciate all the, the different dynamics as I was talking about in the beginning of just like that. It seemed to cross over into so many different genres. And I think your uh, your voice, man, like you, you, you seem to flex a lot of different dynamics between just like the melodic stuff, but then being able to like get into some of the, the screaming stuff a little bit. Like I thinking about stay on the ground and I felt like your, your vocal delivery was like distinct in a different way. Maybe, maybe more in the realm of like the Burt McCracken thing from the used of like where you could, you could really do like pull off the, the screaming and the loud stuff yeah. as much as the melodic stuff. I was definitely trying. Um, still have that going for me. No, but uh, Machine, the producer, um, was really good at uh, getting that out of me. And, um, you know, like, when I made the first two song demos, when I went up to the microphone to, like, sing, I literally think that was the first time I had ever sung, was, like, recorded and pretty much for the first record, it was like, you know, like I'm not a singer. I didn't grow up like singing in church. So by the time the second record came out, I was trying to think about like using my voice as more of like an instrument rather than just something that will like sing the words that I wrote in the melody, you know, because um, it is a voice. A voice is a beautiful instrument. Was it hard for you to, to learn how to do maybe the louder full voice or even more? screamo stuff without blowing out your voice was that a whole process God, yes i would blow out my voice all the time um and uh there was a really simple solution and i wish someone had told me um early on but basically like when you're on stage um where guitar guitar players want to have their guitars cranked as loud as possible and drummers our drummer Nash hits his drums really loud and there's small stages that you play on. And when you're that close to the instruments, you have a little like floor monitor. So when you're singing, your voice is projected back to you so you can hear if you're on key or not. Um, I could never hear myself cause we were playing so fucking loud all the time and there's this little monitor. And so what would happen is I would over sing cause I would try and project so much just so that I could actually like hear if I was on key or not. And, so I would always lose my voice and not to mention, you know, friends who were coming to critique us. They were like, yeah, there's a good set. Your voice sounded fucking horrible and you're off key the entire time. And this solution is really simple. I just had to use a in, in-ear monitor, which is just a, it's just headphones and you can 
like when I when I play with in ear monitors on stage, I only have my vocals coming through my my uh, headphones, and it's just so I can hear my voice. And I was like, oh, when I hear my voice, I don't scream to the point of losing my voice, and I can actually sing every night. Um, so yeah, I kind of kicked myself for not having done that earlier. But um, but yeah, I guess you know it makes sense that people get into musical theater as like singers because singing is such an expressive thing. And again, I'm not like naturally like everybody look at me. So I, I always thought of my voice as just more of like how I play guitar, which is just like, I'm just going to use my voice to like get the song across. And like, I don't want to be fancy about it. So I just had to learn at a certain point, like, yeah, but you know, I can tweak it to um, maybe deliver a certain emotion that would help the point of the song. And, uh, so I just had to force myself a little bit to not be scared to perform, I guess. So like after what to do when your dad drops and car underwater starts to get some buzz, do the shows start changing pretty quickly for you guys where more people are coming out for you or you're, you're shifting into be being the headliner on these, these runs that you're doing. Yeah. I think at that point then, um, like I think the album came out and then like we did warp tour and like over warp tour. I don't know it was like selling a lot every week and like we weren't doing anything cause we were on warp tour and it just kind of like took off. And I think at that point when we got back and played some headlining shows, yeah, we started to see, um, people coming out and MTV two was like playing car underwater. And, um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, that's when we had the moment, like, are we big? Like, did, did this happen? <laughs> we're um, on MTV, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was cool. Um, but that didn't last forever. And then we were stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Expand upon that. Well, you know, this is just like a story you've heard a million times. We, we decided to try and go to a major label or we did go to a major label. Um, uh, and then that process was just soul crushing. Like everyone says. And then, yeah, talk talk to me like about some of the challenges that you faced to go make Smile for Them, which is the follow-up record after, you know, having a few songs kind of pop off off the previous was there just like an insane amount of pressure and you're just thrown into the the music machine at this point. Sure. Yeah, you know, a lot of people that talk about major labels and like it's this nefarious conversation like, oh, the major labels ruined this band or ruined that band. Like, I'm not going to blame anyone else, but like all I can say is for what to do when you were dead, everyone was leaving us alone because they were like, yeah, Dream to Make Believe was cool. They kind of have a little fan base. We're not, you know, no one was paying an insane amount of money to have us record that album. So there was no real expectation. And I think I felt like, I could just do weirder shit. And so for the next album, that was how it started. Like we made demos and I think we had like 12 songs and I was like, this is how we've done it before. Um, it worked to varying degrees of success, but I was like, we have an album, like let's go, let's book the producer. And our management, I think was also paying more attention to us because what to do near dead was successful. And they heard the demos and they were like, cool, write more songs. And I was like, you know, looking back, I should have just been like, um, actually like, I think this will be a cool record. And like, I don't know if it'll be, you know, I don't know if we have, I'm not okay or sugar we're going down, but like, I like, this is the record, you know, that we want to make. Um, but instead at that point, 
everyone's just overthinking it. And our management was like, you should spend a few more months writing. And the label did that too. So I, I don't think anybody had bad intentions, but like, I just think once you do something that gets attention, the next time it's easy to like, let other people chime in a little bit too much, you know? And again, I'm not blaming them because I guess in retrospect, maybe I should have been like, fuck you. These are, you know, the 12 songs that are going to be on the record. But like, I was like, well, you know, I do want to make the label happy. And like, maybe my our managers are right. We should write more. And, you know, and then. Well, of course, just too, t- you're still pretty young at that. Yeah. Point and like new to this experience. And if you're yep. if you're doing things on that level, I got to imagine it's pretty easy to be like, yeah, let's let the professional people that yeah may, like sure. run this business yeah you know help guide like what i should be doing right now yeah and, and no one was being an ass you know everyone wanted you know us to make a great record um i just think yeah and then also time comes into play then we spend another few months doing demos and then like we started working with a producer and then the label was like oh we don't know if he's the right guy so then we fired him and time comes into play because music is like um it's uh it's what's popular at the time and um we just let too much time lapse between what to do when you were dead and that record and it took you know some steam out of the balloon i guess out of the hot air balloon um and so yeah i think it just kind of lost momentum and also another factor working against us was i think the scene was so inundated at the time you know uh, taking back Sunday, my chem were like huge and like every label, every major label was trying to sign every scene band and they were, yeah, everyone I mean, was sounding the same. Warp and, tour was built uh, around yeah, that scene totally. pretty much, you know? And, um, it was just like, uh, yeah. And then, you know, emo just got hot topicified. And, um, again, I'm not, I don't want to like blame the world. Um, I think, you know, I don't, yeah, whatever. It's just, it's what happened. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, now there's kind of this like resurgence of interest in the scene. And I think it's partly because probably, you know, everybody needed a break from it for a while. And, uh, you know, like it took a few years, but like after the breakup, I feel like now people are like, oh, you know what? That guy was pretty cool. Like, let me see what he's up to, you know? So I feel like emo kind of came back around like that. Um, did you personally, like, feel pretty good about the the songs that did make it on Smile for them? Like, or did you feel like your initial ideas for those songs didn't really get represented on the record? Um, to be honest, um, I never to get like kind of deep about it. Like, like I was saying about like, um, playing songs for other people. And like, I, I guess at that time I didn't realize what made people really connect with us. So like, I would just write something. Um, so for the songs that did make it on the record, I guess I liked them in a certain way, but in retrospect, it wasn't the way that I know people connected with our songs earlier on. Um, and I guess, you know, that's just because 
uh, I'm so in the bubble with myself that I didn't see that. And, you know, in retrospect, I don't think our label and our management really saw that either or else I feel like maybe they would have wanted to nurture um, the songs at the beginning that just came from, um, you know, what my gut instinct was. Yeah. Kind of the raw emotion that drove the the previous records and yeah. what kind of got you to the fucking place in the first place. Totally. And, you know, I think I call the record small for them in some ways because uh, I did maybe feel like, I, I don't know, maybe I didn't feel like opening up that much because I was like, everyone's like watching me too closely now. Like even that first track on the record is kind of yeah, like oh, representative sure. of that. Yeah. Like I always like, yeah, I don't know. I, I like go into a corner and like make a weird thing. And then like, I want to show it to people. But you know, if I feel like people are looking over my shoulder when I'm doing the weird thing, like I'll probably just like draw a picture of a sun, you know, like I don't want to experiment and be weird when I feel like, uh, I'm being observed, I guess. So, yeah. So I think I maybe had a little bit of that. And like, I was aware that, um, I was uncomfortable with being scrutinized so much. resurgence in some ways for the scene or maybe just people excited about seeing some of these records played front to back but what do you what is it like for you um like what do you think about what to do when you're dead you know 15 plus years later when you when you listen back to those tunes or you know go deep in into the lyrics and whatnot you you feel pretty uh proud of those tunes still or is it kind of a weird experience for you to to have this snapshot in time of when you're 20 years old or so yeah i mean yeah definitely i yeah i wrote those when i remember being in the studio on my 21st birthday so i i wrote that probably when i was 19 and 20 um it's interesting because as an ambitious 21 year old kid i wanted like it sounds like selfish or whatever but i wanted the immediacy of a reaction to the record and like with that one we we got a little bit with car underwater and stuff but i think you know seeing how it's um connected with people like you said 15 years later um makes me realize like what really makes um art and music special is when it can have that lasting effect um and now that I'm a little bit older and don't want that immediate like attention or success, I think that'll influence 
whatever I want to do moving forward where like if I want to put something out, I'm not going to expect it to like blow up and give me riches overnight. Like I think it's way more meaningful to do something that can kind of like outlive you, you know, and like that's way more rewarding anyway. Um, so, so that's like a cool lesson that, um, this record has taught me, I would say. Yeah. Cause it's definitely, at least to me, or like when I talk to people about music from that era, you know, what to do when your dad and armor for sleep are a part of the zeitgeist of, of that era of things. And I think, man, sonically that record is something, you know, I think a lot of bands were chasing down that sound, those guitar tones that are on that record. Like, yeah, just some of the, yeah. Machine was, machine was on top of his shit at that point. Um, he's, yeah, he's a great producer. Yeah, thinking about just like remember, remember to feel real, and just like those screaming guitars, and yeah. you know, that, at least for my band, we were we were chasing down like to make a record that you know sounded that good, and I think a lot of people were. Oh, that's awesome. was like a chaser of the sonic stuff that was definitely more of like machine dialing in those tones and stuff um but yeah he was great he like our manager suggested we go with him and i was like he's great like that lamb of he had done the the lamb of god record like right before that i was like that's a great fucking record i was like but does doesn't he just do metal like (laughs) but no he's a super talented guy and um he as good as the tones are and everything, I think he really helped us with like the concept and he was on board with tying everything together. Um, like that's almost like where he really came in. So I'm stoked that we went with him. Yeah. I mean, even, uh, I don't know, some of the little moments that tie things together, like Mm -hmm. the more you talk, the less I hear. Mm -hmm. And there, when you, when you reference the rain and the storm, that that little break and then you you can hear that stuff going on in the background and yeah, yeah, it felt like an experience even listening to it today. I've listened to it so many times in the last few days, just (laughs) I was going to talk to you, but just just cruising out. And I think, uh, like I said, even when the, the 15 year dropped, when I, put it on it's something that i'll throw on every you know every once in a while and and i don't know it's not it's not something like i'll listen to the whole record if i put it on you know that's awesome man thank you i was also really stoked that the other day you reposted something on your your instagram story about a solo record Uh uh-huh yeah and i didn't know about that (laughs) and i went back and listened to that the last (laughs) couple nights cool and i thought that that was really cool man and just getting to kind of hear your songwriting in a little more stripped down yeah um setting 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I did that. Um, I think I posted it in my story too. Like that was like after armor for sleep. Uh, it was what? like 2010, 2010. Yeah. Um, did the band dissolve like pretty quickly after smile for them or like, was there, yeah, we did hanging around for we did a small couple for years. Them. Yeah. We, the last tour we did was a project rev project revolution. Yeah. Um, crazy to think now so the lincoln park, lincoln park lincoln yeah park and r.i.p chester yeah and also opening up for lincoln park on that tour was chris cornell r.i.p chris r.i.p chris yeah. cornell dude the best part of that tour was um chris would come on stage or you know chester would come on stage and like they would sing like black hole sun together and their voices were fucking nuts as chester chester's voice was nuts when he was on stage with chris though chris i mean I'm not going to say like Chris blew his voice out of the water, but they were just fucking such good singers. Um, anyway, that was an awesome tour. Really grateful to have been a part of it. Um, it was shed. So it was playing to like 30,000 people every night. And again, there was just this inundation of like emo and the rock music scene. And we had come out with that record on Warner that was like, and then after that, I mean, I definitely initiated, the end of things but i was like either we could like do another record on warner and like this will be the future of like us doing like rock tours and it just kind of felt like i don't know i always thought about how like refused broke up before they let themselves get shitty i know they they came back and did another record but at that point like you know i thought there was something cool and that like it preserved like refused like their legacy that they just decided to end things, you know, when they were kind of ahead. And I guess I, I just would have rather done that than like spent the next few years trying to like get in everyone's good graces again. And like, you know, I don't know at the time I was just over it. So was it really nice for you to make that solo record then? Was that kind of you for the first time in a long time, just getting to lay down some songs that you really dug and just wanted to kind of have an experience without the, the industry kind of influencing it. I think so. Yeah. And it felt good to put out and be like, I really don't care if anyone hears this. So I didn't even like put it on a label or anything. And it was also, also like a weird, sad experience too, to be like, you know, whatever. I don't really care anymore. Um, but I did, I mean, I, I, I liked that, even though I know, uh, I made zero effort to like have it be listened to by anyone. Also that was before like Spotify was a thing. So like to get people to listen to it, I had to be like, buy my album yeah, for man. $5 on iTunes. Like yeah. I didn't want to be that guy either. Yeah. The ar- the whole armor for sleep career existed before the, you know, the real streaming services really yeah. kicked into gear. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we yeah we existed before Instagram. I really dig that, the color of your eyes track Thanks, on man. the solo one. Yeah, Thank that you. uh, that line of lyrics. I need the color of your eyes to paint the moments in my life. I thought was uh, Thanks, man. It's a strong one. The ghostwriter wrote that. <laughs> <laughs>
like even after that that solo EP that you put out, you still like to play music quite a bit. You ever jump on the drum kit anymore or anything like that? I haven't played drums in a long time. Um, I'm probably way worse than I think I would be at this point. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, music... Uh, I don't know. Like I said, my perspectives changed on it where like I used to think like, oh, I'm not 21 and hungry. So like I can't be in the music industry, but I almost think like, uh, if I did anything now, it would just be coming from like more of a pure place. Um, it's almost like a combination of not caring about what people think, but also like doing something that I know can affect people because ultimately, you know, that's the the biggest reward I've gotten from my life from doing armor for sleep is just seeing, um, you know, how something can affect people through the years, something, you know, even as small as what to do when you're dead, you know, not like it's like a, a Rembrandt painting or something, but, um, yeah, that's, that's really fucking cool. And, um, I was bummed out on music for a while. Uh, and I was like, you know, uh, you know, like I said, I'd been playing music since I was like 14 and at a certain point I almost, I compared it to like a magic trick seems really cool, but like once you like see the sleight of hand and you learn how to do it and you like are presenting magic tricks to people, they're still like, oh my God, that's so cool. But you're like, it's not, you know, it's not really magic. <laughs> so like I felt that way about music a lot. Like, like, you know, once you learn the tricks, you're like, it's not, it's really not that cool. Like from like where I am. Um, so I think people still listening to what to do when you're dead made me think like, yeah, it is kind of a magic trick. Um, but like, whatever, it makes people feel stuff. And like, what else are we going to do when we're alive and bored? You know, like feeling stuff is cool. Yeah. What was it like when you started kind of throwing around the idea of, of doing this tour? Um, I was... I was really scared to do it and I, you know, ever since armor has been done, uh, I've kind of gone back to like hermit mode. Um, but Dan from equal vision was like, you know, I think if you did shows, people would like be stoked. And again, I'm blind to like, you know, self-examination. So I was like, I, I guess I trust you. So we hit up our booking agent and I was like, do you think people would come to the shows? And he was like, I'll get back to you. And then like three months later, he's like, yes, all of these promoters think people would come to the shows. And I was like, okay, let's do it. Like if, if people want to go to the shows, I'll gladly, you know, we will gladly do it. I just honestly didn't think, um, as many people would want to go to shows to, to see it. But I guess I was wrong. Yeah, man. It seems, it seems that, uh, people are stoked about it yeah and i know you guys are going out like september yeah uh the first shows are like last couple of days of august and um yeah it turned into i think it's like 20 shows or something um which is crazy um and it'll go through pretty much to the end of the year so when do you start getting in the room with the the, the old gang boys. to to start playing some jams and <laughs> playing these songs again um, so I think I'm going to go back to New Jersey in August so we can start rehearsing. 
Um, and yeah. And hopefully we'll remember this stuff. <laughs> is there, is there nerves around that situation for you as far as getting in the room again? And I mean, we've played a couple like kind of, uh, anniversary shows over the year. It's like, we played those songs for so long that it just takes a couple times playing them where you're like, Oh yeah, I remember this. Just muscle memory. It's totally muscle memory. <laughs> um, yeah, I think last time we played these songs, I only forgot like one line of a song. But the good thing about that is when when the crowd knows the song, you can just kind of back away from the mic and smile and act like you're giving them a moment and they don't know that you actually forgot the lyrics. Um, but no, those are, I think those are seared into my brain too. So I should remember most of that. For sure. You feel like you also maybe are going to get to appreciate it from a different perspective this, this far down the road. Um, yeah. And also, um, I don't know if you heard there was this, uh, like virus in the past year. Um, tell me more. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, so it, it would have been awesome like without Corona, but yeah, cause you were supposed to do this what, yeah. last year. Yep. Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh, probably more than a year ago at this point. Um, but now like I actually went to my first show, uh, like a week ago and it was fucking awesome. It was just like my friend's band playing in a bar. Um, but you know, th- no masks required inside. And I was like, Oh, it's going to be cool to see a band. But like watching them, they're called Silence of You, by the way, they're opening up with the, on the tour. I was like, I fucking hope people get this feeling when they come to our show or like any show. Cause it, I, I didn't know that I would be so overcome by like fucking live music, but oh, it man. felt so good. Yeah. I, I mean, I book music at a, a, a small bar restaurant in Portland and we just got to start you know, putting stuff together. So like every Wednesday and Sunday there's music there. And a lot of times it's just like low key singer songwriter stuff or just duo stuff and showing up to those first couple and getting to not only see music, but get to see the people performing and kind of like them be in the space that they wanted to be in and like how stoked they were is just like, it's such a cool feeling to, to see music again. Yeah, for sure. And, um, so that's cool to think about um, people being stoked, you know, just to see us playing the record, but also just be stoked to be in a room with a bunch of people and not be afraid and just enjoying music, like regardless of whether it's us or not. Um, so yeah, that's like another wrinkle that, um, I'm just excited about. Like I'm personally excited. Like I'll probably just get in the crowd and like watch the opening bands with everyone else to, you know, feel that. Um, cause it's been a fucking weird, a weird year. Yeah, man. And for a lot of people, I would imagine it'll be for some of them, their first shows Yeah, that they're seeing. For sure. So there'll be that extra energy to it too. Yeah. And I hope people aren't scared um, to come to shows. Hopefully by the fall, you know, people will see that it can be okay. And hopefully the numbers keep going down and yada, yada, yada. Absolutely. Is there anybody along this journey that you've encountered that really like shifted your perspective or like just kind of changed your, your outlook on things or whether it's like someone you toured with or maybe even admired from afar. Um, yeah, I mean, I will say like I was, 
such a fanboy of saves the day and Thursday. I know I brought them up already. Um, like their music would have changed my life anyway, but I will say when I got to meet Jeff, the singer from Thursday, um, like probably when I was like 16, he was just the nicest guy ever to me and like zero rock star image and just, you know, remembered me when I, whenever I would come to his shows and same thing with Chris from saves a day. Like when he, um, you know, became my friend when I was like a super fan of his, uh, I would say that's probably like more influential than any of their music, um, was to me because, uh, like it humanized them in a way that I think um, kind of changed my life. And it made me realize that like everyone's a person, you know, cause they were larger than life. And now, you know, like we we live in such a celebrity obsessed society that people tend to think, you know, this rich person or this celebrity is like on a different level, but um, you know, everyone's, a human, you know, and like all of those things are just facades and, and, um, I think I'm, I'm glad I learned that lesson. And, um, if anyone, you know, is like a fan of me and is like at a show and wants to talk to me, I guess, um, I also appreciate how much that can affect someone's life to, you know, talk to them and connect with them. Um, so yeah, that's something that I learned from those guys. Yeah, I think it's also hard maybe from the outside perspective, maybe a fan's perspective to uh, maybe have an encounter with somebody they idolize and maybe it's not great. And for them to like have some perspective or wherewithal to be like, yeah, maybe Ben was having a shitty, really shitty day that day or something, you know, or like this person you encountered was was just like, you know, having a shitty day that the same shitty day that you have when you're not like a super fun person to be around or like interact with. Yeah. Um, I try not to have bad experiences with, you know, people who are taking their time to come up and talk to me cause they're a fan of my band. Not like it happens a lot, but like at a show or something, you know, um, like if I'm in a bad mood, I'll just, I won't put myself in a position to talk to anyone, but I, I don't really get in bad moods. How many warp tours did you guys do? Um we only did a couple. We did one that was like on a weird like side stage for a couple of weeks and I think the next summer we did like a full month. Um and that's when we were sharing a bus with from first to last. Um which was awesome. And uh such so as like summer camp, the whole warp tour experience. Oh yeah, it's it's but like it's summer camp but it's brutal. Um, but yeah, that was cool. And then Sonny became Skrillex, which was cool for him, <laughs> <laughs> but I love Sonny. Well, I appreciate you, uh, you giving me some of your time, you know, like I said, I, this is still a, a record I like to throw on and, um, definitely had a big impact on me at the time. And a lot of the, a lot of the people I was, I was hanging around with and, I think it's just like such an interest, like that whole early 2000s is, is such a interesting time for the music industry too, as far as like the things that were popping off, you know, having all the new metal shit, yeah, going sure. crazy, Limp Biscuit and Linkin Park and bands like that uh-huh. kind of running the airwaves for a while. Yeah. It's, it, 
definitely was something. Is it exciting to for you to see like that that this era of like pop punk and screamo has uh not only like sparked a lot of these anniversary tours, but that that's that scene and that genre like still lives on. And I, I didn't know that it would necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in a weird way, it, it's a little bit of vindication because, um, I know the emo, I guess I'll call it the emo scene now, even though I don't, you know, like, I don't consider that like real emo, but whatever. I'm not an emo historian, I guess. Um, <laughs> Uh, like it, it did become hot topicified and it kind of became a joke, you know? And like, so when our band ended, I feel like there was this general sense of shame from like all of, you know, my friends, bands and I have just being like, man, something that was really cool just became like really lame. And it was just like the butt of all jokes and like, like, Oh, you're emo bro. You got eyeliner on. And I was like, actually like it came from like really good scene of music. And, um, so when yeah when it started to come back around again and get some respect i know there have been these like emo night things which i actually think are like great i've like very um, cool i've never been but uh, i know people awesome. that go and like yeah. i've seen a lot of the videos and i'm i'm just like yeah this is fucking oh, great it's fucking awesome and i think yeah when those started to come back i was like yeah see there was fucking good shit there you like um yeah i just feel like it was it was a little bit of vindication for like something that my friends and I nurtured for so long in that scene. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's so many like new bands that exist in that world that people love to go see. And, and there's the the whole new era of it with like, you know, the bands like neck deep and story so far and knuckle puck and real friends. And I mean, obviously man, equal vision, I think is still putting out some amazing records. There's a, there's a couple uh, Portland bands, Glacier Veins is on Equal Vision. They're they're a Portland band that that crushes. And I talked to the Vaughns recently, who are also on the label. So they're still they're put they're still putting out the goods. And like I said, was super pumped about getting my uh, my 15 year anniversary. What to do when you're dead? Vinyl. Yeah, yeah. Equal Vision. Well, cool, man. Uh, we end every episode of the podcast with the guest of the show saying the tagline, which is, it's a program. So if we could get the... Uh, it's a program? It's a program. 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 It's just like how my grandfather says the uh, the news program. It doesn't mean it's anything. It's just like yeah. a goofy way to end things. Okay. Um, before we play it out with uh, awkward last words... Do you have any awkward last words to to leave us here with? I'll put all the links in the episode notes so people can keep up with uh, what you're doing and and so people can tune into all these these tour dates that you're you're about to go out on. So, any words aside from the catchphrase? Whatever you would like. Oh, yeah. Um. <laughs> just any you know closing awkward last words or just anything you know may have gotten left out of this conversation. Hmm. You know what? I think we covered it. Okay. That those. those I feel are, like that those was are awkward. Last. I feel days. like that pause was awkward enough, right? That <laughs> was pretty awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously, dude. I appreciate you uh, giving me the time and letting me uh, pick your brain a little bit about this this yeah, era dude. of your life. And uh, I'm 
I'm stoked to to see one of these shows and excited that you guys are doing it and that there's still, you know, people that want to see it happen and yeah, bro, I exist in the that. zeitgeist, you know? I'm sorry we're not playing Portland. That's okay. I'll come we here. We tried. Yeah. I'll come here. It's a strange place for uh like the the pop punk and that that uh genre of music in Portland. I've found that um there's not there's not a heavy presence of people that uh are there for that i guess yeah. i don't know i mean we really we bonded to do portland and seattle um but it just didn't happen i also feel like the the venue that you would have uh maybe played in portland is maybe not in business anymore which oh, would have really? been the hawthorne theater which i feel like is where all of the oh i remember that place pop punk and kind of screamo alternative bands will come through and play so like the last place i've seen Andrew from Jack's mannequin and something corporate the last few times there. And yeah, but yeah, dude, appreciate, appreciate the hang. Yeah. And we are going to play it off, play it out with uh awkward last words off what to do when you're dead. That's one of my favorite tracks off that record. And, uh, that's the jelly jams and we will catch you on the flip side, Portland, Los Angeles, wherever you're listening to it from.
Big shout out to Distro Kid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Can't say thank you enough to Distro Kid for their support of this thing. And make sure you go into the episode notes and find that Distro Kid link to receive 30% off your first year of membership with Distro Kid, making their already affordable prices even cheaper for you. So make sure you take advantage of that. And the link is also in uh, the link in my Instagram bio on the link tree. So you can find it there as well. Big thanks to DistroKid. Stay up. Stay tuned. <laughs> 